Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. And we're live. Hello. How are you? So good. How are you? I am so much better. Okay. Okay. I didn't know it was a contest, but I don't know. Go off. I'm all right. <laughs> I'm excited though because we got a little something new. Yeah, we are for, for the people. We're doing things a little bit differently than we've done before. Usually, our listener episodes consist of a bunch of shorter stories that our listeners have sent in, but one of our listeners, Mona, sent in her partner's epic story of survival through Hurricane Katrina for us to share. So I'm going to be doing that with you all today. I'm pumped because you said it was super well written and it's just crazy to me that somebody would send in this long of a story. Yeah, it's definitely a really great story. So I'm excited to share it. Yeah. And I guess a disclaimer, we did get permission to share. Absolutely. To be clear. For sure we did. So shout out Mona. Well, yeah, for sure. Thank you, Mona. Mona's partner, Rose. Yes. Shout out to Rose. Yes. And Rose uses they, them pronouns, just so you know. Shout out to them. So for those who don't know, Hurricane Katrina was a devastating Category 5 Atlantic hurricane that resulted in 1,392 fatalities that caused damage estimated between $97.4 billion to $145.5 billion in late August of 2005, particularly in the city of New Orleans and its surrounding areas. The majority of the loss of lives in Hurricane Katrina was due to flooding caused by fatal engineering flaws in the flood protection system, specifically the levee, around the city of New Orleans. Eventually, 80% of the city, as well as large neighboring areas, were flooded for weeks. The flooding also destroyed most of New Orleans' transportation and communication facilities, leaving tens of thousands of people who did not evacuate the city prior to landfall with little access to food, shelter, and other basic necessities. Hurricane Katrina was a devastating storm, and I'm sure we could cover it much more in depth in another episode, But for this episode, I'm going to be reading one of our listeners' firsthand accounts of their and their family's journey through the storm and how they survived the hurricane. I wanted to share their story because, first of all, it's very well written, like you said. But also, we've talked about so many stories of survival, but this is coming straight from one of our naughties. So it feels very close to home, and I I wanted to share that. So this is going to kind of feel like a story time almost like an audiobook because it's written that way so grab a snack buckle up because ready. this is going to be a bumpy ride so the title of this story is cat's game surviving the storm of the century by rose fennec my friends and i never thought that friday would be the last time we'd ever see each other it was august 26 2005 just another day in high school Tests, homework, gossip, weekend plans. Nothing out of the ordinary. Most of us had heard about Hurricane Katrina's approach by then, but we were happy for it. We were all thinking something along the lines of, awesome, a six-day weekend. I'll be sure to pack clean underwear. It was only a couple weeks into the new school year, so we were excited about the prospect of a little taste of our recently deceased summer vacation. Most people take hurricane evacuations as an opportunity to visit family in nearby states or take a little impromptu vacation. There's a catch besides the obvious, though. The traffic is dreadful during evacuations. Bumper to bumper, as far as the eye can see. Gas prices rise and all the fast food joints shut down because their employees are evacuating, too. I've never evacuated in my life because of the headaches like those. I honestly wasn't worried, and neither were a lot of people at that point. My family doesn't usually care about incoming storms. We truthfully enjoyed most of them. It was bizarre. Most of the local population left, and we had the town to ourselves. There would be buzz in the air, but all was quiet. Once the storms came, we'd sit out on the front porch and watch the wind whip through the oak trees. We'd play in the slightly flooded streets when the winds died down, and we'd read by lantern light when it got dark and the power was out. 
We could do these things because usually the storms fizzled out by the time they reached our town located just a few miles outside of New Orleans. We had lived there a long time in a house that my papa had built in the 40s. As the weekend progressed, we received news that Katrina was getting stronger. She was up to Category 3. Category 3 is when things get serious, but it could still be worse. The media always hypes things up. We weren't scared of a little more wind and rain. We had sandbags for the doorways in case the street drains couldn't keep up with rainfall, and we had boards for some of the windows. We were going to enjoy the peace and quiet of what becomes a ghost town while everyone else suffered in their cars for 14 or 15 hours just to get to Texas and find out that all the hotel rooms are already booked. I went to my best friend's house while his family got ready to leave. I told Taco that I was staying. He sat on the couch next to me with his bags packed for evacuation and said, Please don't die. At the time, he was half-joking. He gave me a picture that he drew. It was a remake of a bad cologne advertisement. When I left his house, I forgot the drawing, but I reassured my friend that I'd be fine, just like I had for all the other storms that came through town. He was still worried, but he had to go with his family. They left that evening. My mom woke me up earlier than usual on Sunday morning. It was about 7.30. Normally, she'd wake me up for church around 8.30 or 9, so I ignored her. She persisted, and I finally sat up to see what she wanted. Rose, you know how the hurricane was a Category 3 last night? She asked. Yeah, I replied expectantly. It's a 5 now, she exclaimed with a ridiculous grin. If there's one thing I love about my mother, it's that she's fearless. Mom was oddly chipper about the wrath of Katrina that was about to consume the Gulf Coast. I was nervous. I asked if we were going to evacuate, but I knew the answer before she told me. Of course we were going to stay. It cost so much money to evacuate. We weren't exactly raking in the dough, and it's such a hassle with the traffic and lodging. And good lord, we'd be crazy to expect Mimi, my 84-year-old grandma, to sit in a car for so long. Who was I kidding? We were going to have a real-life adventure. My papa was smart about it when he built the house. It was on a raised lot, like a tiny hill, and it was also founded on a couple feet of bricks. He was good at what he did, and that house was as sturdy as can be. It survived Hurricane Betsy and countless other smaller storms. Mom and Mimi expected it'd be fine for this one, so we needed a plan. We would get the supplies we needed and board up the windows. We would pack bags of supplies, food, and clothing, just in case, and if the water pumps failed, like the mayor of New Orleans expected they would, we could go to the room that was built over our disconnected garage in the backyard. From there, well, that would depend on the situation. But according to Mom and Mimi, it wouldn't flood. It never had in the past. I begged to differ. They kept telling me that nothing happened to our house during Betsy, but they weren't taking into account all the coastal erosion that had occurred over the previous 40 years. They weren't taking into account that Betsy was a much weaker storm. They weren't taking into account that all the state officials were urging all residents to evacuate. The phrase mandatory evacuation just didn't factor into the plan. Mom and Mimi sat down at the kitchen table and wrote down some of the things we would need to ride out the storm. Flashlights, batteries, food, battery-operated radio, nails to hang the boards for the windows, etc. I asked if we could leave. It would be the first of several attempts at talking any sense into them. I didn't want to stay. I had a bad feeling. I had never wanted to leave for any hurricane before this one, but I knew she was different than the rest. I could feel it in my stomach. Maybe it was because all the other hurricanes I had met had turned into a tropical storm, which is small potatoes when compared to a typical thunderstorm in the south. This hurricane was going to throw us for a loop. She was humongous. She would be relentless. She would change our lives forever. Church was cancelled, so I stayed home to help prepare. My mom offered to have me flown up to my sister's house in Missouri when she realized I wasn't going to let go of the evacuation idea. I retorted that I wasn't going to leave my grandma, mom, and dog alone for this. I had to stay because I knew they needed my help. I couldn't have put it into such a solid sentence at the time, but looking back on it now, I knew it all along. Aside from that, the airports were shut down by that point. Katrina was expected to make landfall that night. Mom and I went to some various stores to gather our survival supplies. There were very few stores open. We stopped at a hardware store that was closed. 
The employees were still there, boarding windows and securing gear outside. They were kind enough to let us buy some nails. We thanked them and made our way to a grocery store. We got 12 gallons of water. While the jugs were filling up, I couldn't hold it in anymore. I was so angry that we were staying. I was angry that nobody was listening to me because I was only 15. Above all else, I was truly scared. I cried. I hoped that crying would help sway my mom because I really don't get emotional often. It didn't work. We were staying. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But when we got home, we called my big brother Justin to see if he would come help us board up the windows. He was staying too. Stubbornness runs in our family. He was 23 at the time, and rooming with some friends in an apartment. When we called, his roommate told us he was asleep. We called later and he wasn't home. So we did it without him. I guess he had gotten our message because he came over eventually. Too bad he had shown up after we were finished boarding the windows. Justin was going to stay with his friends. I wanted him to stay with us so badly, and I made sure he knew it. He promised to come over if it started flooding. He then left to help one of his friends get ready to evacuate. That evening I got online and chatted with a few of my friends who were also staying to weather the storm. My friend Nicole lived in a place that never floods near one of the high schools, so she felt fairly safe there. We talked about how we were happy to have some extra time off school, and we speculated that we'd be out of school for at least a couple of weeks due to wind damage. I was in denial of my gut instinct. I had to be so I could function normally. While I was online, my mom asked me to help her borrow, quote-unquote, our neighbor's Priog. A Priog is similar to a canoe, for all you Yankees reading this. Mrs. Randazzo, the neighbor, was a close family friend who had left town. We knew she wouldn't mind if we used her tiny boat. She had left it in her backyard, tied down to the shed. I hopped the fence and untied the ropes. The Priog wasn't heavy, but it was awkward for one person to carry, so my mom, who was quite overweight at the time, had to climb over the fence and help me anyway. That was the first of many physical feats she'd have to overcome in the coming days. After we had successfully, and awkwardly, stolen it, we put it in my mom's room, which was actually an enclosed porch. Not too long before this, we had put all of the outside potted plants in there. It was like an awkward jungle with a bed and a boat. There was hardly room to walk. I imagined myself with a machete hacking my way through the greenery back to the house. The rest of the day is a blur. I wanted to play with my dog Scout to pass the time, but she was already hiding from the storm somewhere in the house, same as she did when she sensed incoming thunderstorms. I stood in the backyard to watch the feeder bands make their way over St. Bernard Parish. What's a feeder band? Yeah, excuse me, what is that? Okay, feeder bands are lines of thunderstorms and moisture-laden streams of clouds that are pulled into the center of a cyclone oh. and can often appear to spiral into the center as the cyclone rotates. So as far as for a hurricane, a hurricane consists of five main parts, outflow, feeder bands, eyewall eye, and the storm surge. So I guess this is like a part of the hurricane. That would make sense. Okay. They're watching the edge of it consume their church. Spooky. Okay, let's keep yeah. going. She was getting closer every minute, slowly creeping in for a violent takeover from which the city of New Orleans may never fully recover. I took a few pictures of the brooding sky with my digital camera. I spent a lot of time that day putting my valuables on the top shelf of my closet and around my room. None of it was really worth much. It was all just sentimental. Though it can be argued that the things considered sentimental are the most valuable items one owns. My mom had packed me a bag in case authorities came to the door to enforce the mandatory evacuation that had been put in place. If they didn't force us to leave, we'd be able to get out of the house quickly should the water levels rise. Good. We had a plan B, flimsy as it was. My bag consisted of my American Studies binder and my agenda book for school, one outfit, Ironically, I forgot extra underwear, all of my drawings, all of the poems and stories I had written, an extra pair of shoes, a paper fan, pencils, my favorite DVD, Pirates of the Caribbean, and my CDs. I chatted online with my friend Nick. He told me he had a boat, and if it flooded, he would pick me and my family up and take us somewhere safe. I was reassured by his kind offer. 
Around 2100, I got off the computer and noticed that the wind was picking up and rain was beating down. I heard unsecured things getting tossed about. Katrina had arrived. I made some hamburger helper for dinner. It was the last thing ever cooked in the kitchen as it was. We stayed in the den for the most part. Papa had added that part of the house on after the original house was built and he had built it with steel beams. It was the strongest part of the house, my mom told me. I asked what would happen if the rest of the house was torn off because then we'd only have three walls of protection. Mom and Mimi laughed. They didn't have an answer. I had my comforter and my pillow in the den with me so I could sleep on the floor. We kept our eyes on the weather channel until the power went out. The wind was really kicking things around outside. It whistled between the boards that were firmly in place and it rattled the ones that were looser. The water in the street was maybe three inches high the whole night. Everything is worse at night. I was too scared to sleep. It was my first real hurricane, and I was being kind of a wuss. After some nervous chit-chat and staring out the windows that weren't boarded, Mom suggested that I get some sleep. I made them promise not to leave me alone. They promised, and I dozed off into a dreamless sleep. I woke up to a terrifying roar. I looked at my watch and saw that it was 8.30. I hadn't been asleep more than a few hours. When I looked around and saw that nobody was in the room with me, my first thought was that they left me alone to die in a tornado. I jumped to my feet and ran through the house calling for them. I found my mom in her room looking out the glass back door. I asked what that noise was. She barely noticed I was there, but she replied, someone's roof just flew over the house, like it was no big deal. She didn't look in my direction. She was fixated on the events outside. I asked why they left me alone in the den. She finally looked at me and said that Mimi was in there when she left. I was instantly upset with them both. Mom left her room, but I stayed. I turned on the radio, hoping for some good news. News that the hurricane was almost past our area. News that it wasn't as bad as they expected. Any news that could give me hope. I found a station that wasn't too fuzzy and listened intently. I didn't get my wish. They announced that the Ninth Ward, which is just a few miles away, was flooding. So far, they had nine feet of water. I denied to myself that it would flow our way, and I thought, I hope everyone is okay. I fell asleep on my mom's bed, in the jungle room, with walls that were half windows and had no boards over them. When I opened my eyes at about 10, I heard commotion, footsteps, and voices. I instantly knew something was wrong. I got up and went to the kitchen. I looked out the front window through the ugly yellow curtains with yellow puffballs hanging off of them and saw what I wanted to see least in the world. The water had risen about four feet in a matter of minutes, and it was up to the front porch level. The wind wasn't whipping through the trees as much as it was before, but it was still raining. The water wasn't in our house yet, but it would be soon. Our neighbors' houses were flooded. I screamed, Mom, it's flooding. Apparently she knew. She was already gathering things so we could move to that room over the garage. I started grabbing our bags and putting them into my mom's room. She loaded the Priog with our things so we could keep it mostly dry. I don't remember why or when, but I put my comforter and pillow in the Priog. I got a five-gallon jug of water in one hand and a three-gallon jug in the other hand, and I hauled them to the boat. She pulled the Priog to the ramp to get upstairs over the garage and unload it all. She then came back to make another trip. Mimi asked me to help her put the TV and rug in the kitchen, which was higher ground than the den. I reluctantly agreed. I knew the water wasn't going to stop anytime soon, having heard about the Ninth Ward, and we were wasting valuable time. I ran back to my mom to see what else she needed me to do. She told me to get her cell phone and put it in a plastic bag. I snatched it off the charger that wasn't charging because of the power outage and searched through the pantry for a box of Ziploc bags. I fought with the box of bags, finally got one out, stuffed the phone inside, put that in my mom's purse, and brought it to her. I stopped dead in my tracks on my way to her when I went past the front door. I heard the water trickling in under the door and I looked down to see the muddy liquid getting inside my house. My eyes flooded with tears and I realized that I wasn't asleep anymore and this wasn't just a bad dream. Mimi snapped me out of my trance when she saw me crying. She said, This is no time to be crying. 
I shot her a look, and I carried on. I was still operating and getting things done. Telling me not to cry at that moment was like telling a person on a rope bridge not to look down. We decided we had enough supplies upstairs, and it was time to move ourselves up there. I stood in the open back door and looked down. There was an ice cream freezer floating in my backyard. I asked my mom if she wanted a fudge pop. There was wind still blowing just a little, and the skies were dull as ever. I was watching my home drown in sewage. My dog was swimming, and we didn't even have a pool. I was watching my life as I knew it end, and there was nothing I could do to stop it from happening. When I finally stepped outside, down the steps, the water was waist-deep. I looked down and saw a huge, fat, hairy spider crawling on my hip, trying to get in my pocket. I screamed and slapped it off of me so hard it broke into a few pieces and washed away in the water. I had a bruise later. Oh my god. The water was strangely warm, like bath water. Used and very dirty bath water. But I was shaking and cold. I'm not sure if I was shivering from the little gusts of wind beating against my wet body or if it was a reaction of shock. I knew my life was in for a drastic change. Scout was still swimming when I got into the Priog. I don't know why I got into the Priog. I can swim, and the water wasn't very deep yet. I called for Scout. I had never seen her swim before, and I didn't like it. I was still crying a little. My mom told me to think of this like an adventure from all the books we read. I told her that we weren't in a book, and I got out of the Priog. I took all the things out of the boat and brought them upstairs. I shouted at Scout to come to me, and she reluctantly sulked up the ramp. Poor thing didn't have a clue what was going on. She was scared, just like us. My mom was on her way back to the house to get Mimi, who can't swim, but Mimi was already wading through the water. Mom shouted to her that she was on her way to get her, and Mimi said, I wouldn't want to climb in and out of that thing anyway. I told you stubbornness runs in the family. We tied the Priog up to the balcony and then nervously paced for a few long moments. I found some garbage bags and covered our stuff with them to keep everything dry. The roof had blown off in the wind, so all that was left were slats of wood over our heads. The rain didn't even have to try to get in. Mom tried calling 911 to get a boat out to us, but the operator kept trying to give us another number to call. We told her that the cell phone battery was dying and we couldn't write anything down. We were on our own private little island of a very wet hell. I went out onto the balcony and screamed. Everything had happened so fast. I was screaming to let go of the anger I was harboring. Getting rescued would have been a perk. Mom decided that we couldn't just sit there. We had to act. She went back downstairs into the house and tried to call 911 from our home phone. I stood in the doorway upstairs and waited for her to come back. The water continued to rise. By this point, it was armpit deep outside, waist deep inside. It felt like she was down there for hours. I caught myself holding my breath. I felt helpless. I couldn't go down there and search for her. Then my grandmother would be stranded with no one but a dog. I'd be a lot more good alive than dead. My heart beat harder and faster. I struggled with myself. Go down, try to help mom, and possibly become trapped, or stay with Mimi and Scout and stay useful to them. Scout barked and tried to go downstairs. I held her back and talked to her. It's okay, puppy. She's coming back. I was trying to convince myself more than the dog. Seconds dragged by in slow motion. Finally, I saw her face. She had a trash bag full of things slung over her shoulder. She waded to the door and pushed. The door didn't budge. The water pressure was stronger on the outside of the house. She pushed and pushed and the door barely moved. Scout whined and barked and struggled against me. I started to move so I could go down and pull the door while she pushed, but just as I turned to head her way, the door finally opened. While she waded toward us, I asked if she had been able to contact help. The phone lines were already down. Every once in a while, I'd go out on the balcony and shout for help. They told me that someone out there had to have heard me because I was hurting their ears as loud as I was. Scout laid nervously in a corner, unsure of what to do with herself. 
Mimi sat on a pile of old mattresses. Mom and I dug through all the stuff that Justin had left up there when he moved in with his friends. I found some of his clothes and I put them on. They were dry. Mimi asked if the water was still rising. And it was. It had risen above the rain gutters on all our neighbors' houses, and it continued to rise past that. It ended up about a foot deep on the second story of our garage apartment. I looked out the sliding glass door and saw a black lab swimming in the water. He put his head on the balcony to rest. He was going to drown if we didn't help him. We opened the door and guided him around the balcony railing to safety. Once he got inside, I immediately regretted our decision. He was horrid. He humped Scout nonstop and peed on anything he could lift his leg to. I had enough of trying to pull him off of Scout, who was very unappreciative of his behavior. So I pulled him off of her for the last time. I screamed, back off, and I kicked him as hard as I could. The water was mid-calf level, upstairs. The dog was lucky, because the water slowed my swing down a bit. After that, he curled up under a table and left everyone alone. I felt bad for kicking a dog, but I also felt I had no choice. He wasn't trained, and he was panicked. Yelling at him wasn't getting him to calm down. Mom decided that we were going to take the Priog to the nearby fire station or courthouse. Surely someone would be there that could give us a boat ride to pick up Mimi and Scout, and then we could go to a shelter. I hugged Mimi before we left and said, I love you. She looked back at me and said, you'll be back. Mom and I got into the Priog and used chunks of wood to paddle, but the boat was so small that we weighed too much. We didn't even get out of the backyard before we started to sink. Here it goes, Mom said. We have to swim. We swam back, dragging the boat behind us. Some of the water splashed into my mouth. It was quite salty. We got back to the ramp, and I rinsed out my mouth. Mom said she was going to swim on her own to the fire station to get help. I told her I'd go with her, but she said it'd be better if I stayed with Mimi. I reluctantly agreed, because she was right. It was a bad idea to leave Mimi alone. As she swam away, I thought about saying, if you're not back in 30 minutes, I'm coming after you. But I didn't. I knew that I had to be there for Mimi. She didn't come back. Neither did the boat she said she was going to summon. Justin didn't show up like he said he would when the water rose. I didn't know if either of them were alive or not. It's a sick feeling, not knowing. I stood out on the balcony, hoping to catch a glimpse of my living mother or maybe a boat. I screamed as loud as I could. I listened for a reply. Nothing. I screamed again. And then I heard someone yelling, help. It sounded exactly like my mom. Mom? I screamed. Help! I heard again. Mom! I hoped for a response. She had to have heard me. The silence I heard after that was crushing. Of all the what-ifs that had ever crossed my mind, what if my mom was dead, was never one of them until then. I went inside and sat on the couch next to the glass door so I could see outside. A boat with three people wearing life jackets passed by. I jumped up and shot outside. Come get us, please, I begged. A woman said that they would be back and they continued on their way. She lied. I remember how excited I was. We had hope. There were other people out there, and they could take us somewhere with better shelter from the elements. Mimi told me not to get my hopes up because there were probably people out there worse off than we were. And she was right. But in my 15-year-old mind, I selfishly expected to come first. Mimi looked out the back window and said she saw three men standing on the roof behind our house. We met our rescuers. They made up sign language to ask how many people we had. I held up two fingers, then I opened the side door and told them I had a dog, too. They said as long as I had a leash, it was fine. Later, I used a pocket knife to cut some rope to use as a leash. They asked if we could swim to the roof they were on. Of course, I could, and Scout could, but Mimi couldn't. One of the men said he would come back with a smaller boat that would fit into the backyard. He came back, just like he said he would. We set up a chair so Mimi could climb over the balcony railing. 
I handed all our stuff over to her, and Mom's things too, in case we found her. It was a lot to carry, but worth the trouble if we were reunited. I picked up Scout and passed her over to the man in the boat. The black dog came tearing outside to come with us. The man asked if he was our dog. I said no, and that was that. I shoved the dog into the room, shut the door, and got into the boat. I had my camera with me, and I took some pictures of the buildings that were underwater while we transited down Judge Perez Drive. The water was so high that I could reach up and touch the traffic lights if I wanted to. They look a lot bigger when you're not on the ground in a car. We stopped at Shelmet High School. It was used as a shelter of last resort. The principal and some staff stayed behind to care for people who needed their help. We had to walk through waist-deep water to get into the gym. The gym was higher ground, so it wasn't flooded. We had to hold all our things straight up over our heads, and I had to hold Scout's rope leash at the same time while she swam next to me. It was a fiasco. We finally got inside, and I was stunned that there were so many people. I stood looking around for a moment, assessing the chaos. Some people sat still with their eyes glazed over, some wandered aimlessly. There was a woman laying on a table under the basketball hoop about to give birth. Are you kidding me? Oh my god. What a terrible time. Yeah. I don't think you could have timed that birth any worse. No. Wow. We settled into two seats with all of our things. We probably looked crazy, but people who are prepared often do seem crazy. Better to look crazy and have supplies, I think. The man sitting next to us had a broken leg with no cast. I looked up and down every single row of people, hoping to see my mom. She wasn't there. My friend Brian was, though. He was wearing nothing but a pair of silver boxer shorts. I took Scout with me and walked over to greet him. He had always wanted to see my artwork, so I thought now would be as good of a time as any to show him. Might even distract us from the current nightmare of our lives. He told me that during the whole storm, he was on the deck of a small boat. He swore up and down that he had been talking to a bush, and it talked back. He's on mushrooms? <laughs> or something. Later on, they announced that the National Guard was going to fly everyone up, out and up north. No pets allowed. Just wait, that's a reoccurring theme. Mimi decided we shouldn't go because we didn't know where my mom was. I thought we shouldn't go because I wasn't going to leave Scout to die. I had that dog for 12 years, since I was 3 years old. I wasn't about to lose her to a flood. Mimi found a man with a boat who said he would take us back to the house. I didn't want to go to the house. We didn't have any food or actual shelter, and that beast of a dog was in there too. There was a woman who needed a ride to the local hospital, Shalmet Medical Center, her husband had a heart attack, and she was searching everywhere they may have taken him for treatment. So there's a woman who's giving birth and a man who had a heart attack. Bad timing. I mean, yeah, but also, like, life doesn't stop. No. That kind of happens anyway. That's true. So, yeah, just at the worst time. Yeah, badness. The first stop was our house, since it was on the way. It was too dark, and there was too much debris in the way to get to the backyard, so we went on to the hospital. We had to climb about 10 feet to get onto the balcony of the hospital. They pushed Mimi from below and pulled her from above. I was the second to last off of the boat. It was a lot easier for me than Mimi. I just grabbed someone's hand and walked up the wall. A road trip sounds easier than climbing walls, doesn't it? Scout was barking an awful lot, but they said that we couldn't bring her up with us. She was scared and alone. She barked all night long. The boatman had to tie her into another boat. He had more places to search for survivors. I changed out of my brother's clothes and into my spare outfit on Mimi's orders. Mimi didn't have anything else to change into. My 84-year-old grandmother was cold and wet, and she refused to share my dry clothes. I went outside to talk to Scout and hopefully calm her down a little. She was quite a disturbance. I didn't want her to think that we had abandoned her. I had never seen the sky so clearly before. It was so dark outside that it was calming and startling at the same time. All of the light was starlight. There wasn't a cloud in sight, and I could see so many stars that it looked like powdered sugar dusted over a black napkin. 
The only time I've been able to see the stars like that since then is when I was in the middle of the ocean on a naval deployment. We found a spot on the hallway floor to sleep. I asked one of the people who worked there if they had any blankets or anything to put on the floor to dull the chill of the cold tiles. All they had were a couple spare hospital gowns. The thin fabric didn't do much. I had a hard time sleeping, so I went outside and consoled Scout often. When my pillow dried enough, I brought it into the hallway for Mimi. My comforter was hanging on the balcony railing to dry. The next morning, they cleared everyone out so they could clean up. We went up to the roof. They had cookies and room-temperature milk up there for breakfast, but I couldn't bring myself to eat. My mom and brother were both missing. We soon returned back to the second floor. I was leaning over the railing, talking to Scout, when I realized my friend Nick was behind me. Not only that, but Scout just so happened to be in Nick's boat. I talked to him for a bit. He tried to reassure me that my family would be okay and there was nothing to worry about. Kudos for trying. I still wasn't so sure. He told me that he tried to pick us up, but we weren't at the house when he came. A man named Dennis asked if he could give Scout some food and milk. I told him, of course. She hadn't been fed or watered since the day before. He hopped down into the boat. Scout growled at first, but when she realized he was there for her own good, she let him feed her. Later that morning, they told us we had to evacuate the hospital. We had to climb out of a window and onto a rooftop. From there, we had to climb down a ladder and into a boat. I went down first, and the police officer handed Scout down to me. He was worried that she'd attack the boat driver if I wasn't there first. We sailed down Judge Perez Drive once more, and this time we turned onto Paris Road. We were going to the jailhouse. On the way there, another boat slowed down to tell us about a group of violent people who were stranded in Village Square, a nearby neighborhood known for its low-class citizens. As we neared, I heard shots fire. They wanted a ride, too. They were obviously smart people. Everybody knows that shooting at people is the easiest way to get on their good side. We turned down Paris Road, and soon we were in sight of the jail. The policeman got out of the boat and began towing us. The water was only knee-deep in this area. He told us we had to walk from there so the boat wouldn't be damaged in the shallow water. Scout swam in it. I gave Mimi the pillow and blanket to carry, and I handled the rest. I didn't want her to struggle and fall in the water. She insisted that she could carry something more, so I gave her her own bag. I saw a man from church nearby, and he told me that the whole back half of the church had been torn off. Once we got to the jail, I put Scout in the yard with the other dogs. I went inside with Mimi and signed in. This was the first time we had signed into a shelter. We put all our stuff down in the crowded hallway on a bench. They gave us some sliced turkey and bread to eat. I was too antsy to eat, and the turkey made my mouth feel weird. I had to check the sign-in sheet for my mom and brother. I scanned each page frantically. Nothing. I looked again. John Doe, John Doe, John Doe. Then my heart stopped. Kathy Marine. I found her. She was here, in this building. And she was alive. I gave the sheet back to the person in charge, and I bolted down the hallway in search of my living, breathing mother. I passed by Mimi and told her the good news and continued on my search. I went through every wing, corridor, and cell, and I didn't see her. I started on my way to look again more thoroughly this time. I saw her walking in a hallway in a throng of people. She looked exhausted and worn. Her eyes were sad, and her hair was stuck to the sides of her head in clumps. She was wearing a shirt from the prison, and she was barefoot. Mom, I shrieked. I could be exaggerating here, but I distinctly remember that her eyeballs popped out of her head and her jaw hit the floor. I shoved my way through all the people between us, and I hugged my mom tighter than I ever have before. I turned to bring her to Mimi, and it turned out that Mimi had joined the search and wasn't far behind me. We brought her to our little hallway campsite where Mimi gave mom her extra pair of shoes. Mom had told a lot of people about me and Mimi, and she wanted to introduce us to them all. I felt a little famous for a few minutes. I took Mom to see Scout. Scout was so excited that she barked and bounced and ran along the fence until we got to the gate. Mimi took the opportunity to nap on the lunch table that the prisoners normally eat on. We went back inside and sat at the neighboring orange table. 
the thick paint was chipping off. We talked about each of our experiences while we waited to find out what was happening next. On her way to the fire station, Mom had to kick off her rain boots. They were slowing her down. When she finally reached the fire station, nobody was there. She started making her way to the courthouse, two blocks away. She used a piece of driftwood to float on, and she kicked her feet going against the current. When she was almost to the courthouse, a boat pulled her in when they heard her shout for help. Those must have been the shouts I heard while I was on the balcony. She tried to get the people at the courthouse to send a boat for Mimi and me, but they never got around to it. Eventually, she found someone to go after us, but we had already left for the high school by then. She said they didn't have anywhere to sleep besides the wooden benches. There was a man who was moaning all night long about his back pain, like everyone else was comfy or something. She didn't sleep that night. And then, much like we left the hospital, she left the courthouse and came to the jail. Someone announced that there was food in the gas station right across the street from us. Mom and I left to check it out. None of us had really eaten anything in the last two days. I was starting to get shaky, but I didn't realize it until I sat down to eat. We had to wait a few minutes while they picked up a downed power line. Then we went into the store. It was really dark. There was broken glass and puddles of sludge all over. Most of the packing on all the food was soaked. I got some orange juice, Pringles, and bubble gum. Mom grabbed some snacks and drinks for her and Mamie, and we made our way back to the jail to eat our looting spoils. There was a man named Bernard sitting at the table next to us with a little girl, Sarah. It was clear that he was worried about someone. Sarah was playing, trying to get her mind off of her missing mother. We struck up a conversation and found out that they were separated from his wife while they were being taken to shelter. I know how that feels. We could smell food cooking while we were on our way to visit Scout outside. When we got our food, spaghetti with sauce, we found out just how bad jail food is. The pasta was clumped together, and the sauce was... Well, it may as well have been the blood of vultures. I couldn't even chew some of it. I tried to give my share to Scout, but she wouldn't even eat it. That's how bad it was. My dog, who licks her own butt, wouldn't eat this pasta. <laughs> around, around dusk that night, we were told that we were moving to another shelter, in Algiers, with running water and air conditioning. No pets allowed. I brought Scout with me anyway. They wouldn't let us ride in the van to the ferry, so we had to walk. It wasn't too far, just up the street, maybe half a mile. We put our bags in the van and started our trek. We saw Bernard and Sarah walking just up ahead of us. I jogged up to them and found out that they were both barefoot. The pavement was rocky and jagged. I told Bernard to try and walk on the painted stripes along the street. It was smoother than the asphalt. I told him I had an extra pair of shoes in my bag, but he'd have to wait since my bag was in the van. I gave Sarah a piggyback ride. When we got to the landing, we had to stand and wait for a long time. I couldn't put Sarah down because we had to stand on a metal grate that's designed to keep tires from sliding when driving onto the ferry. I wished I could pick Scout up too, but Sarah was somehow managing getting heavier and heavier every minute. Scout's paws must have been killing her. She sulked with each step. She laid down close to us and tried not to move. When we boarded the ferry, I saw that one of her paws was bleeding a little, but she walked fine on normal ground. I had to argue with the crewman to let Scout on board. He was pretty adamant that the captain wouldn't want a dog on his ferry, but it's amazing what you can get people to do when you're a girl and your eyes well up with tears. There was a girl sitting close by who was crying. I think her name was Stephanie. She was a couple years younger than me. I brought Scout over to her. I had read an article once that said petting animals relieve stress, and I hoped my pup could be of assistance to the crying girl. While she pet my dog, she told me she was terribly frightened of riding boats. I told her that if the boat could make it through Katrina and still float, we'd be fine on our little trip. She calmed down a little bit. It seemed like it had only been a few minutes since we left the dock when we arrived to our new destination. It turned out that it was only a few minutes. We didn't go to Algiers, like they said we would. We went to St. Bernard Port, just a few miles away from the jail. More specifically, it was like a giant warehouse on the levee. To get to the dock, we had to climb a ladder of sorts. It was actually one of those things that ships used to slide cargo down. 
The rungs rolled to minimize friction, but there was a handrail. Scout couldn't walk up that, so Mom had to carry the luggage with Mimi. I scooped Scout up in my arms. She was 75 pounds of shivering fur. I began my climb. The line of people going up the ladder moved at snail's pace. It got harder and harder to hold my dog. About halfway up, my foot slipped, and I almost fell. I don't know how I caught myself because I couldn't hold on to the handrail. Mom told me to wait. She'd come back down and help me with Scout. I couldn't see how that would be any better than me carrying her, so I pressed on. I didn't want to hold the lines up. Each step was careful and precise. I got a lot of wide-eyed looks coming my way when I set Scout down on the solid ground again. She shook with relief, like I had just given her a bath. A few people who hadn't seen me set her down asked me how I got the dog up there. I carried her, I replied. How else would she have gotten up there? We got in the back of a truck and they brought us around the levee to the warehouse. People were setting up camp on these stacks of plywood. There was no running water, air conditioning, or anything else they said would be there for us when they evacuated us from the jail. I was getting real tired of people not delivering on their promises. It's not like I'm entitled to anything more than any other person is, but when you make a promise, I expect you to hold up your end of the deal. I saw Brian again. He was helping people get settled. He brought me to a table in the middle of the warehouse where they had water for everyone. I had to tie Scout up to a huge iron line outside. I went outside often to pet her and give her any food I could. I walked her a lot, to pass the time. I felt like crying a lot, but I didn't. It wouldn't do any good. Just survive. Get through it, and eventually there would be a bed with my name on it. Somewhere. The National Guard was bringing in food, water, and medical supplies by helicopter. The hello would land on the levee, and then men would jump out and start offloading the supplies. It made me want to fly helicopters. I wanted to help people, too. I wanted to help people in the present situation more, but I was more focused on my own family than anything else. At first, they rationed MREs. Two people per one MRE. After a day or two, we got more and more supplies, so we were allowed to have one of our own with one bottle of water. We ate twice a day. Mostly, I gave my food to Scout. My appetite was left behind in the escaping of the flood phase of this story. There were five porta potties set up, and there were at least 2,000 refugees in the warehouse. After a day, it was disgusting. I would wake up around dawn and go pee before a line formed, and that would be my only trip to the toilet for the day. That's one bonus for dehydration. You don't have to pee a lot. One day, my mom went in and she threw up because of the smell. This is significant because my mom's stomach is actually forged from iron. A couple times a day, I'd take Scout for a walk through the warehouse and look for Justin. After a few days, I stopped looking. There weren't many people arriving, and Scout was limping. She looked sick, and I was worried she'd die. Mimi told me that Scout probably wouldn't die. She was a blunt old bird. <laughs> After the third or fourth day, my mom started to feel sick. She had pneumonia. I felt her forehead, and she was hot. I asked the first aid area for a thermometer. Mom's temperature was 102 degrees Fahrenheit. I got some Tylenol for her and eventually forced her to get some antibiotics. She was trying to be strong, but I couldn't deal with the thought of losing my mom to a chest cold after I had just gotten her back. She wrapped up in my orange comforter, and even though it was hot outside, as southern summers tend to be, her fever eventually broke. A man started causing a ruckus. He was shoving his wife and shouting. Some people restrained him and locked him in a cage outside. They told him that if he would calm down for half an hour, they would let him out. He kept yelling at this one guy, something about how he didn't have any authority, to which the guy said, martial law. He didn't calm down, and they waited a very long time before they let him out. I talked to Brian a lot to pass the time. Another of my friends from school was at the warehouse, Maurice. There were lots of rumors going around. One that I remember distinctly was that the government was sending people to the warehouse to shoot us all so that they wouldn't have to help us. Even though I knew it couldn't possibly be true, it put a pang in my gut. There was a heavy rain one day, and I went outside to rinse off all the dirt. 
Someone tossed me a small chunk of a bar of soap. I danced in the rain while I washed off as much as I could while clothed. One time I was walking Scout, and I brought Sarah with me. After a few minutes, we heard someone calling her name. She turned and bolted. By the time I spun around, I watched as she leapt into the arms of her mother. On the fifth day, a policeman had a bullhorn and announced that we were being moved again, this time to Texas or Baton Rouge. My mom got emotional, which was rare, and I got excited. I wanted to sleep on a bed again and have a shower. Later that day, they began loading people onto ferries and barges. We were on the last ferry out to Algiers. It didn't leave until the next day. They gave us as much water as we could carry when we left. I gave a few bottles to Scout. She drank and drank and drank. Once we got to Algiers, they searched our bags for weapons and alcohol. Then we boarded school buses and went on our way down the interstate to Texas. At one point, we stopped and got on a commercial travel bus, like a Greyhound bus, and the driver had to call someone to make sure we could bring the dog. Big surprise. I sat in the very front row with Scout, curled up on the seat next to me. Mom and Mimi sat right behind us. There was a guy who had a bunch of fried chicken that he cooked up before his power went out during the storm. It was delicious. We made a stop where they had set up an area for us to change into clean clothes and get some food. A man handed me a sandwich. I said thanks. He looked me straight in the eyes and said, God bless you. I could tell that he was genuinely concerned about us. I'll never forget the look on his face. His eyes were burdened with my worries. It took about 13 hours to get to our destination in Texas. We stopped in Dallas and they told us that we were going to Denton. There was a Baptist church's campus. They searched us again and treated us like royalty. They were incredibly supportive. They took mom for breathing treatment, and while she was there, a nurse let her use the phone to call my sister Carrie. Mimi and I got settled into our bunks in the dorm area. I went to the cafeteria and ate a cheeseburger and chips. Mimi stayed behind to shower. After my mom came back, we went to get some clean clothes that were donated to the camp so we could shower. On our way out of the clothes room, we met a woman who had stayed in the Superdome during the storm. She cried while she told us her story. People were getting raped and beaten. Sometimes they weren't allowed to use the restroom for no apparent reason other than the entertainment of the guards posted outside. I was glad for the first time that my mom hadn't listened to me. While I was pleading with her before the storm to evacuate, I asked if we could at least go to the Superdome, and she said that we'd be better off at home. While I was walking back with my bag of clothes, I saw my brother-in-law, John. It was a movie moment. He shouted at me, It's about time you called, baby girl. I dropped my bag and we ran to each other. I'm pretty sure there was a field of daisies surrounding us, and there may have been a unicorn in the background somewhere, but I could just be exaggerating the magical feeling of the final rescue. We collected all of our things and went to a hotel with Carrie and John. Carrie and John had no idea where we were until that day. They had heard that they were taking survivors to Dallas, so they were going to start searching for us there. They left their house in Missouri and hit the road. When my mom made the phone call to Carrie, they were only an hour or two away from us. I looked in the mirror at the hotel and saw that I had lost a little weight. I got in the shower and cleaned myself and shaved my legs. I felt like a human again. I had a boil on my knee. It had festered for a week now, and, I, and I'd have to get it lanced later. Aside from that, I was happy, healthy, and hungry again. We went out to eat at a Chinese food restaurant. The service was bad. Like, they completely ignored us bad. John got fed up and went into the kitchen so he could get a refill on his drink. The cooks just looked at him, confused. That was the first time I really laughed since everything changed. In the morning, we started driving toward Missouri. The worst of the things were over. Finally but the struggle was just beginning. We stayed with Carrie and John and their kids for a couple of weeks. It was crowded in their cozy home. We took Scout to the vet. She had pneumonia and heartworms, but the vet was able to cure both of her ailments. Mom got word that her office was relocating to Lafayette, Louisiana. We moved so she could get back to work. I went to school there for a grand total of four days. Then we got word that another hurricane was approaching. Rita. <laughs> We evacuated to Opelousas because it's located above the flood line. We stayed in a nice house, but there was a pond in the backyard. 
We weren't in the worst area of the hurricane, but there was wind and rain. It's possible that I had a little PTSD that went undiagnosed. I couldn't sleep knowing that there was water right behind the house. I was waiting the whole time for a flood. It didn't flood, of course, but I was happy to leave when the hurricane passed. Mom's office moved again, so we relocated to my aunt's house. She lived in a houseboat on the Bell River. We stayed there for about two weeks. Scout liked running around with her dogs in her huge yard. I liked to sit on the roof and draw, but it wasn't a stable living situation. I was out of school for about a month by that point. I wasn't complaining about the time off, but I had to move to my sister's house so I would be able to graduate on time. I hated living in Missouri. I made friends and I did fine in school, but it wasn't home. I missed my real friends, and my real school, and my real house. I only lived there until the end of the semester. On January 13, 2006, Carrie and I went on a road trip. I was going home. On the way, her car started making a weird noise and the steering wheel was shuddering. We had to stop and get it fixed. I was frustrated that other things were keeping me from getting home. It only took a few hours and we were back on the road. We pulled up to my house. It was the first time I had seen it since the water came. An old friend Kelly was there. I wished she wasn't. I wanted to see the wreckage alone in case I felt like crying. There was dried mud cakes over every horizontal surface. The house was cleared of debris already. Some of the walls had been knocked out. The neighborhood was a mess. There were huge piles of debris in front of the house waiting to be taken to the dump. We stayed on the West Bank in Marrero for a while. It was a long drive every day to go to school. Eventually, FEMA put a trailer in our backyard so we didn't have to commute so far anymore, and we could start rebuilding our house. We didn't have electricity for two months. That meant we didn't have hot water or a heater, and it was winter. It was miserable taking cold showers when we were already cold. But we were that much closer to being home, so it was okay. It was really interesting to watch the community come together. People who didn't know each other were stepping up and supporting each other in times of need. The flood caused a lot of damage and challenged me more than ever before, but I survived. My best friend didn't move back home. A lot of people didn't. I don't blame them. The city isn't the same, and it never will be. But that's how life happens. Things change, people come and go. The world evolves and strives on. It just so happens that this change was one that happened so fast that we could watch. People survive, people adapt, they learn lessons, and they sometimes forget the lessons they learned. Because of that, I often remind myself how powerful Mother Nature is. She let us lie in that delicate balance she maintains. And for that, I respect her. I graduated high school on time, and I went on to attend the University of New Orleans for three years. I majored in fine arts, and I minored in physics. During my senior year, I decided to drop everything and move, and I moved to Houston with my oldest brother, Nick. I wasn't happy at home anymore. If there was one thing I learned throughout the whole Katrina ordeal, it's that we have to take what little control over our lives we can. It's not up to us if we live or die. It could be taken away in the blink of an eye, no matter how well we take care of our bodies, cars, homes. All we can do is hope for the best. And that's the end of the story. Wow. Yeah, this story was amazing. Yeah, quite the journey. And um, a big thank you to Rose for writing in. Absolutely. Thank you, Rose, for letting us share your story. And it was incredibly well written, too. 100%. So props for that. We're definitely going to have to cover Hurricane Katrina more specifically in another episode, but it was really interesting getting to see how it was moment by moment for this family. Yeah, it's just like all the emotions and kind of just inevitable creep of the flood. Yeah. Super anxiety inducing. Absolutely. There were so many scary moments that they had to overcome. Like specifically when the water was coming under the door, that was such a scary moment. Or the moment when they got a little water in their mouth and it was salty. Yeah, and you that's like gross. realize that it's from the ocean. Yeah, well that and also just generally mixing with all the grossness of Yeah, disgusting. Everything. Yeah. And then shout out to Mimi. Yeah, yeah. Ice Mimi. in the veins. <laughs> Truly. Might I say I mean she doesn't know how to swim, but she's like, Yeah, I'll just walk. Yeah. I'll just walk. Just wade through the water that's waist deep and then armpit deep that's no continuing problem. to rise. Yeah. There were so many amazing details, too, that really brought you into the story. Like, I just really enjoyed getting to hear 
their thoughts going through their head throughout the story. Like when they were talking about wanting to evacuate in the beginning or when Mimi told them not to cry when, you know, the flooding started happening and they were, and they said like, telling me not to cry right now is like telling someone on a rope bridge not to look down. Like it's just, yeah. it's just moments like that that I really enjoyed. Um, or that they're like angry when the storm's happening and it's just too late. But of course you're angry. Of course, you know? yeah. There were so many unbelievable moments and lots of bravery. You know, it just, it felt like a movie. Honest, right. Honestly. Right. And I was going to say, I can't believe that they kept it together the whole time. Yeah. I mean, you have to. Well, yeah, but it's hard. Of course it's hard. I mean, I, mean, I guess you don't know how you're going to react until you're in that moment. But there were just so many moments of like selflessness, you know, like mm -hmm. their mother going and swimming to the courthouse yeah. and 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 before that even just going into the house and like risking her life to gather more supplies and like try to call for help again and i mean that was 100 percent risking her life and then swimming that was risking her life and then the unbelievable moment of hearing their mother calling for help and then not knowing if they're alive or dead yeah and to hear it go away yeah it so, almost makes so it feel like I mean, just logically, you jump to they must have drowned. Right. You know. You would think. And a really long period of time before they reunited, too. A lot. Yeah, a lot happened in between that. And also something about Mimi that I really, that really stuck out to me was when um, she didn't want any of the dry clothes. Yeah. She just wanted all of it for Rose. Right. I was going to make a comment about that because older women just have inherent selflessness inherent selflessness but also just an insane capacity for being uncomfortable oh, or to yeah. tolerate pain i mean it's built and, in yeah i know pain but, is built in baby <laughs> right but i was gonna say my grandma got hit by a truck and broke her hip yeah went to the er you want to know what she said her pain out of 10 was what like a four or five wow four or five she shattered her hip that's insane that and I'm like, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of a, I don't want to say stereotype, but I think it's a thing. Do you know uh, yeah, what I'm trying to I'd, say? Yeah. I mean, it's a good, it's a good and stereotype. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But, just bravery you know, and selflessness and like. Mimi's got it. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of, lots of bravery, but also a lot of fear, you know, mm -hmm. not just, not Mimi. I just mean like in general, like I'm sure there was a lot of fear happening. Yeah. I can't imagine you're sitting on the garage with no roof yeah and the water's still rising in a storm there was about a foot of water in the garage before they got rescued yeah with that crazy dog in there too yeah i know that it felt bad to kick it but you had to yeah you know uh, yeah there's not really much else to do in that scenario it's just you it's like just you did a good you did a good deed by saving the dog but then after that it's like you have to protect your own they mentioned people just coming together. It is kind of amazing to me just how automatic the re that response is mm -hmm. for people because nobody's being paid to rescue anyone. Right. They just do it. Yeah. You know? Or setting up shelters or setting up shelters, yeah. getting people food and water. Mm -hmm. Like it just people just do it. Yeah. You know, but the other flip side was I was, I was thinking how amazing it is that food and water and like all that shit gets delivered to you every day. Like if it stops for something like this, like society like cannot function. It's like you need the most basic things. And when everything isn't working like clockwork, it's like could kill thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. You know, just because it's not there anymore. You yeah, know? you have to come together to reach a common goal of survival i guess the balance of just getting everyone what they need is so delicate it is very delicate but it must be extremely difficult to help that many people when like a gigantic disaster happens you know yeah the when scale of it is insane insane yeah when when all when thousands and thousands of people are displaced and have nowhere to go and no resources and no food and no water and nothing like it must be impossible to help all of them all at once i mean you have to but like it just it must yeah. be a shit show where does all the food come from yeah you know yeah what I mean? or just it's like all the grocery or... stores were flooded right yeah 
you got to get it all from other places and bring it in all at once. It must be so difficult to like organize all of that. Yeah. Anyway, very I, good story. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe that like the hospitals still function. Like I just don't yeah. even understand how and that, that was, part works. That was the other thing was like other people in the story. There was a woman giving birth and a man who had a heart attack. Like that was yeah. the, like there were people who were having other major events happen. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. just the hurricane. Well, I mean, I would imagine if you're going through something where your entire life is being flooded, you might be more prone to a heart attack yeah. or major health events. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I guess for people out there who do know more about Hurricane Katrina and, you know, want to send me an email and let me know about it when we do cover that episode, I can... Draw from that. Yeah, draw from personal that. Personal experience. Yeah, for sure. But anyway... Yeah, I know that this was a little bit different than what we normally do. So thank you for sticking around for it. Um, And like we said, a very big thank you to Rose for letting us share your story. Absolutely. But anyways, what is your good thing? Yeah, my good thing this week is that I got a good performance review this year. So happy about that. Congratulations. That's huge. So uh, I do good things sometimes. Yes, very good. And what's your good thing? My good thing is that I had so much fun last night. I had a little girls' night with uh, with my girlies. And we went out, and we ate good food, and we saw a little improv show, and we went out dancing. And shook a little ass. Shook a little ass, as you should. And it was very fun. And I got home really late, and I didn't even really drink that much, and I still felt like I was hungover because I didn't sleep too much. <laughs> so, right, and it's just like, it's just not fair. It's not, right? it's like, ugh, you, you have to, you can't win. You can't win. It's like if you drink, then you have to hydrate and you got to get to sleep. Yeah. Right. But if you don't drink, you still have to hydrate and go to sleep. And I didn't really even drink that much. I had like a drink. I had one drink and I woke up this morning and I was like, why do I have a headache? Anyway, I want a refund. That's not very good thing. (laughs) Let's reframe. Um, My good thing is that I had a girl's night and it was lovely. It was worth it. Yes, it was worth it. Um, And I feel good now. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out the bonus episode that just came out, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival like this one, and you'd like to possibly hear it on on an upcoming listener's episode, send it to nottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.